This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, January 21st, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over the MLK Day weekend, I did my civic duty. I put in my time, a lot of time, in fact, spent time with Bernie and Amy, Pete and Liz and Joe, and even Tom, and for some reason, Corey. I even read all of Deval Patrick. That's right, all of Deval Patrick. Yes, what I am describing is my experience and foray into the New York Times endorsement suite of communicative services. Now, it used to come down to one day an endorsement shows up. There it is on the side of the paper opposite the good op-eds. And everyone says, yeah, figures they went with that guy. I mean, JFK, LBJ, Hubert Humphrey, McGovern, Carter, Carter, Mondale, Dukakis, Clinton, Clinton, Gore, Kerry, Obama, Obama, Clinton. Right? That's who the, that's who the New York Times got endorsed. Now, granted, Wendell Wilkie, instead of FDR for a third term, I didn't know about that. Shakaru, let's say. But in general, the New York Times is a center-left institution that is extremely informed, but also stodgy. And most importantly, not desperate for attention. But this is the age of Donald Trump. And what better way to stand athwart a clearly manipulative, predictable, shallow reality show president than by doing a worse reality show than he did? So that's what the Times put together, where the people on the New York Times editorial board stopped being polite and started getting real. Trump kicked the door open. and There are a lot of people who look at this and say, man. You know, I can do a better job than that. And I have to tell you, I haven't voiced it to you, my colleagues, but I've thought that several times myself. I'm serious. I thought, shit. You know, I mean. Strike that from the transcript. (laughs) The Choice. The show was called The Choice. And let me tell you, I read the special section. I listened to the podcast. I watched The TV show, I even compared the written section to the podcast version of certain interviews. For instance, in the interview with Bernie, this happened. What you said on the Lou Dobbs show is that that exploitation lowers wages, and you just said that again, so I'm confused about what has changed about your position. What did I just say again? You said that the exploitation of undocumented yeah, workers you're being results paid $5, in lower wages If, if for you're being workers. paid $5 an hour now, of course that's going to lower wages. Why would I hire it at a higher wage? But just a minute ago, you said that was no longer your position. I'll we, just ask you straight, is it, is it your position that immigration and no, the exploitation... I didn't say immigration. I said that if you are paid, anybody yeah. is paid, exploited, and illegally paid low wages... Yeah. Of course that's going to lower wage standards in America. There's a lot of economic research suggesting that it does not. Not that I have seen. Okay. And then the conversation that was played on the podcast, which I was playing for you, that cut out. But in the transcript, this happened. Uh, New York Times. I think that there's a lot of research suggesting that's not actually the case. Yes. Bernie, that if I pay you five bucks an hour, it doesn't have an impact on wages. 
that immigration, I didn't say immigration, that immigration under certain circumstances, which is substantially under, buh, 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 hold on, you're misstating me, but I knew how he said it. Bernie said it like this, buh, 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 hold on, you're misstating me. That was my favorite part, the buh, 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 buh. I was denied hearing that in the podcast. The overall questions asked were, you know, pretty good, like a pretty good interview with most of these candidates. Cory Booker, no longer a presidential candidate, brought the room down with the story of a death of a young kid when he was mayor of Newark. Andrew Yang knew the name of the economist who invented the concept of GDP, and he spit that name out to the New York Times editorial board member who wrote a book on economists. He still did not make the final four. What were the top four there? Warren, Klobuchar, Booker, and Pete. So yes, on to the finalist. The choice, as it was called. They could have made a bad choice, or a good choice, or an ill-considered choice, or a surprise choice, or a safe choice, or really any choice during this multi-platform special section podcast TV show called The Choice. There was just one thing they could not do. We are breaking with convention and putting our support behind not one, but two candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. They made no choice. They did not choose. The New York Times was not just breaking with convention. If we followed their advice, we would be breaking the law. There's no real screwing up the answer, who do you endorse for the presidency, unless you endorse more than one person. You got the definite article wrong. And after all of that, you know how I feel? Not educated, not elucidated, not elevated. I feel like a dope. I was stupid to have cared about the New York Times decision when the New York Times really did not care enough to make a decision. And here, we were all privy to the talk among the editorial board of rewarding candidates who stand for something and striking out against candidates who don't resonate sufficiently. But I just got such a sense of vagueness from Bernie Sanders. Um, it felt like a lot of platitudes. And then they picked two of the above. Their editorial talked about how Elizabeth Warren was something of the fighter and Amy Klobuchar was something of the pragmatist. But by evoking Warren as something other than a pragmatist, it damned her. And by citing someone else who is more of a fighter, it damned Klobuchar. That's one of her biggest weaknesses. This was an endorsement that did direct damage to both people it endorsed. But it also redounded to the benefit of their rivals, namely the non-moderates who are polling in double digits. Biden and Buttigieg benefit from this endorsement because it was, well, too many candidates by half in terms of Elizabeth Warren. It really was an insult to Elizabeth Warren. You have to think that absent the trappings of a multi-platform rollout, Elizabeth Warren surely would have been the candidate to appeal to the Times' sensibilities. They have never endorsed a candidate as unlikely to win as Klobuchar. Their discussions took into account who was likely to win. And since their main reason for picking Klobuchar all lay in Warren's lack of practicality and patience, that's a quote from the Times, it was really harmful to her. To put things in perspective, the Times endorsement really doesn't mean much. It is, if anything, a lagging indicator of establishment center-left or maybe a little left of center-left orthodoxy, which historically has been captured in the polls of those who are doing pretty well in the Democratic Party. But to put things in a little less wide perspective, let's acknowledge the Times endorsement is a big enough deal for all the candidates to care a lot about it, for me and maybe you to have paid attention to it and to put our trust into it. Stupid us, huh? If given the choice between doing it this way 
and doing it the old way of just shutting up about the whole process and coming out with an editorial. You know what? I endorse both. No, I don't because that's stupid. I say go back to the old way, kill the hoo-ha and the falderall, go back to clear, dedicated, and direct. You know, the old gray lady doesn't have to be old, nor gray, nor ladylike. Just please don't lapse into the Trumpian again. On the show today, I spiel about impeachment proceedings, simultaneously historic and really, really rote. But first, when the U.S. killed Qasem Soleimani, it opened up a Pandora's box, the contents of which we may not know for years to come. However, the action did advance U.S. interests. Soleimani was not just a bad man, but a very effective force who was destabilizing the region and spreading mayhem throughout the world. So I've been trying to weigh the costs and benefits. I've been trying to do so honestly. To that end, I have on Matthew Levitt, expert in terrorism, author of Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. A couple days ago, maybe a week ago on this program, I quoted at length the House testimony of Matthew Levitt, who is an expert on Islamist terrorism. And so I wanted to have Matthew on now, some of his credentials. He worked with the FBI after the 9-11 attacks. He is a senior fellow and director of the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He worked for the Treasury Department for a time, essentially tracking down terrorist funding networks. He knows all this stuff. I defer to his expertise on how Iran and Hezbollah do things, but then I want to question him about some of the conclusions about what to do about that. Hello, Matthew. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So after the strike on Soleimani, what was your first reaction? My first reaction was surprised that we actually did it. And my second reaction was that that most certainly was the same reaction that the Iranians had. I think the Iranians and their proxies did not think that the United States would carry out such an action, targeting Qasem Soleimani in particular, but frankly also targeting Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, the leader of Qatayb Hezbollah, the Iraqi Shia militia who was also killed in the same strike. And I wondered whether this marks a shift in the Trump administration's approach to Iran and its proxies, that it truly will exact a really punishing cost on Iran and its allies for terrorist attacks or military attacks targeting and injuring and killing Americans, or whether this is a one-off and the administration hopes that by taking a really significant, bold action, Iran will effectively be deterred from engaging in any further mischief. What were you worried about? The worry, of course, is for the repercussions. How will Iran and its proxies react together and, and independently? What I mean by that is Qasem Soleimani himself was most dangerous for being the, the personality, the charismatic personality, whose job it was to build out this Iranian proxy network. You might think of it as an Iranian foreign legion, a former Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps general has referred to it, his term, not mine, as a Shia liberation army. 
and to get them all to play their part. They don't all necessarily see eye to eye. They're all competing for funding from Iran, for illicit funding sources, say, within Iraq or elsewhere. They're not all exactly as close and as beholden to Iran, say, the Houthis in Yemen are not anywhere near as close to Iran or as beholden to Iran as, say, Lebanese Hezbollah mm-hmm. in Lebanon or Qatar Hezbollah in, in Iraq. And how are they going to respond now? On the one hand, taking out Qasem Soleimani denies Iran that kind of close command and control of its proxies. That can have some benefit to us. On the other hand, it denies Iran that command and control of their proxies. And maybe Iran won't want proxies to carry out attacks targeting Americans in the immediate, but maybe they can't stop them from doing so when those proxies felt very, very, very close personal relationships to Qasem Soleimani, the man, and almost certainly want to carry out a revenge attacks uh, in their own right, not only because they are part of the Iranian proxy network. Okay, so a lot there to interrogate, as they say. One, he was the charismatic leader. So is that to say that his value wasn't as much of uh, as a tactical general as the person actually designing the strategy or more of a figurehead, though perhaps a valuable figurehead? Well, I'd break out the term strategy and tactical there. I think he really was a very important strategist. And he was also the man whose mission it was to implement that strategy. And I think he probably had a decent fingerprint on certain tactics, but he was the boss man. He wasn't the man who was pushing the plunger on the explosives or pulling the trigger. The Quds Force is a large and capable organization. These various proxy forces also are very capable. It's not the case that with his death, they are suddenly incapable of carrying out sophisticated attacks. They are as capable or incapable today as they were before Qasem Soleimani was taken out. But that is a really important strategic role that is missing. And there's a lot of literature about the benefits and more so the limitations of the idea of decapitation as a counterterrorism strategy. Right. If there ever was a case where uh, there was an individual that I think that if you if you took him out, it would have certain really clear-cut effects on a larger proxy network and its ability to coordinate um, and uh, uh, command and control. I think this would be it, but it doesn't translate tactically. So your assessment is the killing of Soleimani uh, really does make the Quds Force less malevolent, less able to deliver violence around the world. No. My assessment is that it makes the Quds Force less capable of coordinating and building up a kind of larger pan-Shia structure that is beyond Iran. The Quds Force itself, that structure, that's intact. The Quds Force can do uh, everything today that it could do before uh, Qasem Soleimani. Each of the individual militias and terrorist groups, with the possible exception in the moment of Qatab Hezbollah, which lost its leader, mm-hmm. is probably just as capable today as it was, and Qatab Hezbollah will recover from that. But the ability to operate in a coordinated fashion, the ability to have someone with the charisma to smooth over the interpersonal disputes, to make this network of proxies move and operate in coordinated fashion, that's taken a hit. And then I also think that because of the nature of this strike, targeting someone that proxies and Iran itself, I'm sure, felt was you know untouchable, has forced them, these proxies and the Quds Force, to kind of realize they need to spend a little more time looking over their shoulder. Finally, Iran itself does not want to push the envelope so far 
that it invites serious kind of military to military conflict with the United States, they cannot win there. Their expertise is in asymmetric warfare. And I really do think that far more important to them than exacting revenge for the death of Qasem Soleimani in the near term, and they have a long-term vision here, and so that will ultimately come. We can talk about that, but in the near term, it's A, focus on things at home, especially after, after the downing of the Ukrainian airliner and the resumption of protests there, and B, they really do see an opportunity to try and leverage this towards trying to push U.S. forces out of the region or at least significantly minimize the uh, American and Western footprints, and in that sense to try and enable Qasem Soleimani to achieve in death what he had not yet achieved but was working toward in life. What about pure acts of revenge? Those will come. But I think that Iran is coldly strategic and calculating. And if Iran has its way, and because of the loss of command and control that came with the death of Qasem Soleimani, it's not clear that this will be enforceable. But I think if Iran had its way, it would be telling it's telling its proxies, you know, no major terrorist attacks right now. We're not looking to target embassies right now. What we want to do is pester uh, the Americans maybe bloody their nose a little bit. We want to try and leverage the moment to see if Iraq politically, even nonviolently, can get the Americans to leave. This is much more important to them. But then in time, yes, the Iranians will seek to kill a senior American or to target an embassy or something like that to seek revenge. And they do have the capability to carry out spectacular attacks, not only the Quds Force itself, but also its proxies. So as part of our calculation in deciding if this was worth it to take what you say is the benefit of the elimination of the person of Soleimani as the head of this virulent force, take that on the one hand and weigh it against the damage that this virulent force does, even without him as the head. Would that be a proper way to say if it was worth it? That certainly is the calculation, and it's the way the Secretary of State and others have articulated it very clearly, and uh, they're their conclusion was that uh, you know Americans and the world at large was safer without Qasem Soleimani. Right. And I'd hate to be in a situation where you say we can't strike out against an evildoer for fear that they will do more evil. On the other hand, you know, if you're a leader and you have to a leader of America and your charge is to protect its people, you have to take into account, okay, what are the risks? What are the risks down the road? What are the risks of civilians who didn't ask for anything in this fight, who otherwise wouldn't have been targeted being targeted? And I just, I'm looking for guidance on how to make that calculation. When will we know, okay, these were the consequences? Is there some set of circumstances where you would say, wow, because they were able to carry out this operation, we have to go back and say that we shouldn't have assassinated Soleimani. Can, can that ever be? You want to make these types of calculations and you make them with difficulty. In the first instance, it's often very difficult to know what you've prevented. You know, it's, you'll, it's, it's often the case you just won't have evidence of knowing what, what didn't happen because of an action you took. I think in this case, you know, looking at Qasem Soleimani and the extent of his activity around the region, the way he was able to leverage proxy groups, organize them, fund them, arm them. You know, when you get to the point where, for example, the Israelis are now expressing concern, not just that Hezbollah could fire rockets on them from the north, but that other Iranian proxies could fire rockets on them from elsewhere. So while it's probably the case, I think, that Hezbollah does not want to start an open war with Israel and is unlikely to fire rockets on Israel 
in response to the Qasem Soleimani assassination. Iran has forward deployed rockets to Iraqi Shia militants in western Iraq that are capable of hitting Israel. And uh, Iran has sent rockets to Houthi rebels together with uh, advisors from Lebanese Hezbollah, people like Abu Ali Tabtabai, and advisors from the Quds Force, including one of Qasem Soleimani's most senior deputies, who we now know was also targeted in some type of strike that same night, which, which did not succeed, Abdel Reza Shahlai. They, from Yemen, also have rockets that have a range that could hit Israel. You know, building up that type of a network, I think overall my assessment would be that there is benefit in taking him out. I hope that what happened was this was given enough consideration in advance to be able to say, okay, intelligence community, what do you assess are the greatest risks? Where do you assess those greatest risks are? And what do we do to mitigate those risks in advance of taking out? someone like Cosmos Soleimani. I guarantee you that U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies are a lot busier today than they were before the assassination of Cosmos Soleimani, even if it is the case in the long term that made people safer overall. And if you were looking at this and wanting to assess it purely through a Trump lens, many of his justifications, it seems like align with things that you agree with, but then him talking about, perhaps it's bluster, but take him at his word, him talking about, and we're going to get out of Iraq, that should be taken into account and perhaps also weighed against some of the justifications he's been putting forward. I think that, you know, I don't think the Democrats or Republicans like it when I say it, but I think it's true that one area of convergence across the parties and across the Obama and Trump administrations, and certainly with I think most of the Democratic candidates as well, is kind of a gut instinct that says we got to get out of the Middle East. And I don't think we should be deployed as we are today in the Middle East for forever. But I also don't think we should pull out prematurely or too quickly uh, and leave behind a bigger mess uh, than is in our interests. And so how we do that is something we need to think out. And I think we also need to think through what really is an endless war and what is not. For example, the very small, very inexpensive, and very cost-effective deployment to Syria, I think, is the antithesis of an endless war. So I think we need to think those things through. I think there is an interest on the part of this administration and others who are running for office to get out of the region. But I don't think the way to do it is right now in this context and to give Iran a win. There are other ways to, to get that done. Matthew Levitt is the director of the Reinhard Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He teaches at Georgetown. He wrote Hezbollah, the global footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel for the third time in history. A U.S. president faces conviction for high crimes and misdemeanors. The fate of the nation, the stature of the republic, the reputation of the most powerful office in the world hinges on one thing. This is an important impeachment case against the president. Yes, it is. Impeachment manager Zoe Lofgren, it is important. It is crucial. It is existential to the rule of law. Or if you are of the ilk that this is a miscarriage of proper congressional oversight, then it is existential to the rule of the people being allowed to have their pick for president. This is why the congressional debate has been so important to get all of the information. Bolton, Lev Parnas, Parnas, the bombshell, the game changer, 
so totally clarifying to roughly half of the public who are all 99 to 100% sure Donald Trump deserves to be removed. It fills in key details that absent the testimony of Lev Parnas would leave these observers in a state of, well, still being unbelievably certain that the president deserves to go. Likewise, the bombshell offered by Parnas cannot be ignored and will move any fair-minded observer to the stance that the president is guilty. Any observer, except for the roughly half of the public who will never, ever believe the president is guilty no matter what. I guess Lev Parnas is the kind of bombshell that emanates radiation Only we find out that the public are mostly cockroaches, unperturbed by radiation. Then there are arguments about arguments that will lead to arguments that will certainly clarify. Here was Adam Schiff on ABC's This Week. Uh, The reality is, because what the president is threatening to do is cheat in the next election, you cannot wait months and years to be able to remove that threat from office. That's a good argument. That really does explain the need to hurry things along. I think that explains it to certainly everyone's satisfaction, everyone being those who are 99 to 100% sure the president should be removed from office. But that same argument that we assert that time is of the essence because he's tried to commit a future crime and the best way to address that crime is not to remedy it through the election itself, it's to remedy it through a removal to a different sort of listener, like the sort of listener who will never believe in the president's guilt, that not only goes nowhere, that works against the ultimate goals of impeachment. Now, I have to admit, I think what Schiff said there was fine. I'm doing a little bending over backwards, and maybe sideways, challenging enough for my level of yoga, to put myself in the mindset of the portion of the populace, which is almost half of it, that doesn't believe that Trump should be removed. Because I think, of course, the president upheld foreign aid for political gain, that he used the foreign policy of America for his own purpose. I am convinced, and I could spend so many days on the Republicans putting forward terrible arguments, and I could spend some days on the Democrats putting forward somewhat questionable ones. Now, to be fair, here's a terrible Republican argument. This was put forth on the floor of the Senate today by presidential counsel Jay Sekulow. Mr. Schiff also talked about a trifecta. I'll give you a trifecta. During the proceedings that took place before the Judiciary Committee, the president was denied the right to cross-examine witnesses. In gambling, when the first part of a trifecta doesn't come in, the next two don't matter. So in this case, his trifecta loses because there is no right in the Constitution for a president to cross-examine witnesses during his impeachment trial. This wasn't a denial of a right. This was declining to invent a new right for impeachment. Trump was no more denied his right of cross-examination than he was denied his right to tickle all the Miss Universe contestants. He may have liked to have done it, but it was not allowed. That does not make it a right denied. But back to my main point. What we are watching is historic. But every single thing that happened before now is history, from the impeachment of a president to the beginning of that sentence. I'm more concerned with consequence. Note, I didn't say I'm more concerned with that which is troubling or outrageous or worthy of a great reaction. I just think we should look at these proceedings and cover these proceedings and experience these proceedings with the lodestar being consequence. And I would advise others who covered the proceedings, and I would also advise all of us to consider them not in the context of will it change the world, but to consider them in the context of rolling coverage of the impeachment trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump. 
So the headline shouldn't be today in the trial of Donald Trump, a stunning blow to Democrats. No, it should be today in the trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump, a foreseeable blow to Democrats. They were not allowed to call witnesses today in the trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump. House managers complained that Mitch McConnell orchestrated a cover up that predictably fell on deaf ears today in the trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump. The Senate rejected the House's proposals to subpoena Ukraine docs from the White House. See, it's not shocking. It's not earth shattering. It's not terribly unexpected. We avoid becoming overly dramatic. Is it depressing? Sure. Does it put a stress test on democracy? It does. It's historic. It's unprecedented. And it's totally glaringly foreseeable. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Allaby is the GIST's associate producer. She endorses putting Q-tips in the ear and also not wearing white after Labor Day. Daniel Schrader is the producer of the GIST. He endorses that it's a sandwich and a hot dog and a Christmas movie and not and a dessert and a floor wax. The GIST endorsing both whoa, 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 whoa and buh, 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 buh. But don't alternate because wubba, wubba, wubba sounds like you're describing my 1969 Plymouth Barracuda to the guys at Car Talk. Umpuru, deparu, duperu, and thanks for listening.